0: Hi, this is Jim Stein, a host on the New Books Network. Our guest today is Wade Rouch, the author of Extraterrestrials. This tremendously entertaining book examines one of the great questions confronting humanity. Are there extraterrestrial civilizations? And if so, why haven't we seen any evidence of it? It's a delightful and easy-to-read summation of the original Fermi question. Where are they? and the history of how we've explored it and what conclusions we might come to based on those explorations. Wade, welcome to
1: the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me on.
0: Wade, I was fascinated by the story you tell in the preface of how you initially became interested in extraterrestrials and how you came full circle to write this book. And I think our audience would enjoy hearing it too.
1: Well, I'd be happy to tell it quickly. Sure. So I should say, first up, that I'm a kind of a child of the 70s and 80s, when, of course, uh, movies about aliens were, you know, every weekend there was a new movie about aliens, right? Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, If you go back a little bit before that, um, 1968's hit, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Of course, Star Wars and Star Trek, all of these fictional treatments had made it completely sort of a standard assumption in our culture that, of course there are aliens and of course we'll meet them someday. So that was kind of the atmosphere I grew up in. And then along came Carl Sagan and his TV show Cosmos, which aired on PBS in uh, 1980 when I was about 13 years old. And I would say that was the show that got me hooked on this question about extraterrestrials and first uh, made me realize that it wasn't simply a question for science fiction or for mythology or literature but it was a question that scientists could investigate. Um, Fast forward about five years, um, I was 18 and going off to college, and I was lucky enough to be at Harvard College in September of 1985 when the college was dedicating a new uh, computer programmed by a physicist at Harvard named Paul Horowitz. And this computer was specialized to sift through millions of radio frequencies very quickly for evidence of uh, signals from intelligent civilizations, and it cost some money to build it and uh, Paul had gotten some grants from the Planetary Society, uh, which was an advocacy group set up by Carl Sagan, and uh, Steven Spielberg had also pitched in so uh, Spielberg and Sagan were both on campus to help celebrate this event, and I was there as a freshman journalist <laughs> reporting for the campus newspaper, and I uh, wound up covering the symposium talking with Sagan and Horowitz, and that was my very first published story of any kind. And, uh, well, that that was what got me hooked on the whole subject of extraterrestrials, and in fact also got me launched on a career as a science journalist. So in a way, although I never came back to the topic until I wrote this book, it's been bubbling there in the uh, the background of my head for a very long time.
0: Fascinating. Um, How did Enrico Fermi's classic question on extraterrestrials,
1: where is everybody... Arise? Well, there's some debate about that. I mean, there's agreement on the basics. So, Enrico Fermi was a uh, genius uh, Italian born physicist who came to the US before World, War, w- before World War II, wound up working on the Los Alamos uh, Manhattan Project, and then working on the hydrogen bomb project also at Los Alamos after that. And uh, everyone who recounts this story agrees on the basics, which was that Fermi. Uh, Emil Konopinski, um Edward Teller, uh, and a couple of other physicists were sitting down at lunch at Los Alamos one day in 1950, and they got into a discussion about a cartoon that had appeared that week in the New Yorker. And this cartoon showed aliens getting off a flying saucer, presumably on their planet, and each alien was carting around a trash can marked "New York Department of Sanitation," and The joke, which you had to kind of be a New Yorker to understand, was that there had been a rash of thefts of trash cans. Nobody understood why all the trash cans in New York were disappearing. And at the very same time, of course, this is is the late 50s, sorry, the late 40s, 1950 or so. um, That was exactly the time when people were first reporting a rash of UFO sightings, and the idea of flying saucers had just kind of caught on. So the cartoon was sort of like a, a, a joking mesh, meshing of or melding of those two memes um into one. And and the physicists were sitting around kind of joking about the cartoon. And this led to a conversation um about extraterrestrials and at some point uh everyone agrees. Teller spoke up and said, Don't you wonder where everybody is? Or he might have said, Where is everybody? There's <laughs> the exact wording every people seem to disagree on. But uh, it was understood that he was asking if there are aliens at all let's let's think for a minute about why we haven't seen any of them. There probably aren't such things as flying saucers. Um, we can discount that. Uh, the idea that you know there are aliens visiting us in these flying saucers right now is probably a little bit ridiculous, but that does actually beg the question of why there aren't any aliens here, given that the galaxy is pretty old and that if any single technological civilization developed interstellar travel they really ought to have expanded across the galaxy and visited basically every habitable planet by now but they haven't as far as we know so that became known as sort of the fermi question and over time um it it kind of got refined into something called the fermi paradox Uh, by the late 70s people were speaking about it as the fermi paradox and it just kind of boils down to the question of if there's any life at all in, in the galaxy, why hasn't it developed to the point where uh, we've been visited by other beings? Why is it that we seem to be alone, given everything we know about um, planetary formation and evolution and the chances that life will arise and our own history as a, as a civilization? One would think that we would have some company and that they would have visited us, but it seems like they haven't. So how is that?
0: Well, what is SETI and what is, has it discovered?
1: Well, SETI, S-E-T-I, is an acronym that stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And (laughs) what it has discovered, I would say, is evidence that there are no nearby civilizations trying to get our attention. Um, It's a, a null result so far, but you can never prove a negative. So the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as Carl Sagan and other folks would often say. So we can't conclude from SETI's null results so far that there are no other extraterrestrial, that there are no civilizations outside our solar system. All we can conclude so far after about 50 years, 60 years really, of searching is that there aren't any civilizations transmitting close enough to us that we can pick up their signal and understand their signal. Um, That leaves a lot of room for other possibilities. It doesn't rule out. Uh, the possibility that we have company in the galaxy. It, all it does say is that we don't have the technology or the right technique so far for finding them.
0: Um, one of the things that arose at this in this era was the Drake Equation. What is it and what can we conclude from it?
1: Yeah, great question, because the Drake Equation has become sort of an organizing principle for a lot of discussions about extraterrestrials. And it dates back to a uh, kind of milestone event in SETI, which is that in 1962, a group of astronomers and radio astronomers and physicists and other thinkers got together at Green Bank, West Virginia, which was the site of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. And uh, this meeting had been convened by Frank Drake, who was a young astronomer working at the observatory and uh, a sponsor from the National Science Foundation. And they just wanted to have a weekend uh, discussion about the science of aliens, basically. They wanted to start thinking more systematically about whether there might be um, extraterrestrials for us to find. Because Frank Drake himself had, in fact, been doing that for a couple of years. He had come up with uh, a thing called Project OSMA in 1960 uh, and had spent some time on the telescope, one of the telescopes at Green Bank, searching for signals. And had come up dry, but there was increasing interest in this question so all of these scientists assemble at green bank for this conference and it's frank drake's job to come up with an agenda for the meeting and the way he tells the story uh he tried to think about all the different factors you would need to consider if you were trying to figure out how many other uh, high-tech civilizations there might be in the galaxy civilizations with enough technology that we would have a chance of communicating with them And he realized that that question sort of depended on a number of different factors, like, well, how many stars are there in the galaxy? How many of those stars have planets? How many of those planets have life on them? And so forth. And then he wound up writing down these factors as sort of um, in a pseudo equation that became known as the Drake equation uh, that kind of lays out a possible path to high tech civilization one factor at a time. And I'd be happy to go through those. But that's the basic explanation, and it has persisted ever since because it's just such a useful way of thinking about the problem.
0: Um, The idea of extraterrestrial civilization started a long time ago. What is plurality of worlds, and how did the idea arise and evolve?
1: Sure. Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. The idea that there might be extraterrestrials predates... Uh, Frank Drake and the Green Bank meeting by millennia, really. I mean, if you think about it, Jim, I mean, I I would make an argument that there's almost like a place in the human uh, mythos, human brain, maybe. It might be baked into our psychology, into our, um, our thinking as a species, that we're not necessarily alone, that there might be other beings, that there might be higher forms of existence. Um, And we've been reading those ideas into the heavens for probably tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Um, But we certainly have been speculating more explicitly about whether there might be other worlds inhabited by other sentient beings since, you know, at least five or 600 BCE. And that idea was written down by Greek philosophers like uh, Democritus and Epicurus and passed along over the years and it eventually kind of settled into this idea that was that became known as the plurality of worlds and it's it's simply the idea that earth may not be the only inhabited planet uh, in the galaxy or in the universe and that if you think more broadly about where life might arise and what the universe is made of you know if the earth is made of atoms if atoms are everywhere then there might be other planets made of other atoms and there might be other people on those other planets. That's the plurality of world's ideas, and it went, it went through many, many transformations and iterations over the centuries and over the millennia, but um, uh, has kind of stuck with us and developed into what we now think of as a more systematic field of SETI or astrobiology.
0: Well, I know that Girolamo Bruno got burned at the stake for something like this in the he early did. portion of the 17th century, but later on it became actually became a mainstream idea during the 17th and 18th century. How did that happen?
1: I think basically it just took a while for the idea to gain circulation and to become respectable and to exit the realm of heresy. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about the the Renaissance and the early Enlightenment here when a lot of ideas were, um, you know, becoming safer to talk about, at least in an intellectual or philosophical way, so that it was no longer considered, um, uh, you know, you couldn't be burned at the stake by the year, say, 1750 or 1800, for just broaching the idea that there might be other worlds with other beings. So, uh, yeah, the the idea basically took hold post Bruno. Um, uh, in a form that you could have a respectable coffeehouse debate about it, right, in uh, late 18th century France or someplace like that. And I think that by the early 19th century, it had certainly um, become part of a, an overall sort of uh, scientific realist worldview that was widely shared by many Enlightenment thinkers.
0: Well, there's got to be a naysayer somewhere, and that was William Wool. What weaknesses in the plurality of worlds theory did he point out?
1: Well, right. Um, William Huell was, um, he was the master of Trinity College at Cambridge, which was the same college where Sir Isaac Newton had taught um, centuries before. And he was a highly respected scientist, but also a, a deeply devout Christian. And while he started out his career believing in, or at least leaving room for the idea of extraterrestrials, he eventually kind of came to the conclusion That the idea that there might be other inhabited worlds was not compatible with strict Christianity. Um, I mean, if you want to go into the details, it's basically a theological argument. Um,
0: Not really uh, necessarily.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there can't be multiple saviors um, to save multiple worlds, then you kind of have to conclude that the earth is the only inhabited world. That was the basic uh, idea motivating Huell. Because he had started thinking in this more skeptical way about the idea of the plurality of worlds, he actually did marshal quite a few, um, quite rational and and, um, really penetrating questions and arguments for why we might, in fact, be alone. And those questions were things like, well, you know, it would be nice to believe that uh, that there are living beings on Jupiter, for example, but it doesn't look like Jupiter has a breathable atmosphere and also the gravity would crush you. It doesn't look like Mars has uh, enough water to support life. You know, he started asking more scientifically grounded questions about whether aliens might exist. And, and the important effect of all of that was to make um, people who were more open to the idea of science, the important outcome was to make people who were more open to the idea of extraterrestrials actually go and start looking for better evidence. So it was important and it kind of pushed the whole debate forward.
0: Um, and speaking of moving forward, we're now moving close to the 20th century. Who was Percival Lowell, and how does his theories of canals on Mars, which would obviously supply water, arise from a mistranslation, and how were they eventually overturned?
1: Percival Lowell was a uh, an aristocratic Bostonian who uh, came from a prominent um, textile family. They had plenty of money, and... He was uh, wealthy enough to be able to go and build his own uh, personal observatory in Arizona in the 1890s. And he had become infatuated with this idea uh, spread uh, by uh, an Italian astronomer named uh, Schiaparelli that there were canals on Mars. Schiaparelli had published a a couple of books alleging that he had observed uh, lines or marks on the surface of Mars through his telescope and in his books, he called them canali, and the legend was that when that, when when Schiaparelli's books got translated from Italian into English, translators took that word canali and translated it as canals. Uh, another natural translation for that word would have been channels, and whereas a channel um, could be natural or artificial, a canal is almost by definition artificial, and that got uh, the idea is, the legend is, that that mistranslation sparked Lowell's search for similar canals and, spark- and, and motivated him to build his uh, observatory. The truth, I think, is a little more complicated. I, I, I kind of dug around in Schiaparelli's writings, and I think it was clear even before Lowell came along that Schiaparelli thought that the canals might be artificial, and he certainly wasn't discouraging that kind of talk. Um, so I don't think that the mistranslation story really holds water in the end. Um, but it is one of those stories that journalists call too good to fact check. Um, in
0: 1939, because I remember this because my parents told me about it, Orson Welles did a radio broadcast of HG Wells' War of the Worlds.
1: What happened? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, that's a famous moment in American cultural history and media history. Uh, I, you know, you can jump back to Percival Lowell, um, whose work inspired H.G. Wells to write *The War of the Worlds*, which came out in serial form, I think, in eighteen ninety-nine and nineteen hundred, and then came out as a novel. Uh, fast forward about thirty-nine years, and Orson Welles, uh, part of the Mer- Mercury Radio Theater of the Air, decided to uh, produce a live radio uh, dramatization of. The George uh, of the H. D. L. story, and that's what we now remember as sort of the Halloween night um, hoax, in a sense. But the newscast, <laughs> the dramatization was uh, sort of presented as if it were a newscast. It was sort of a, a faux, uh, you know, an announcer breaking in and uh, talking about how Martians had landed in New Jersey. And the myth again is that the story, uh, the the radio performance caused widespread panic that in itself is up is open to question how many people actually panicked how many people really believed that there were martians landing in new jersey um, that has been kind of a uh, a myth that's gradually been deflated over the years but either way it went down in cultural history as kind of a um, a, a touchstone moment in the history of radio and It was just I would say it was yet another illustration of how deeply the idea of extraterrestrials had kind of gotten wedged into the human mind by that point to where um, at least some people did take seriously, could take seriously the idea that that Martians had landed in New Jersey. So um, (laughs) I I like to cite it because, you know, basically it's uh, it's just it's just evidence that the idea of extraterrestrials by that point was very deeply embedded and, and considered to be widely credible.
0: Um, the search for extraterrestrial civilizations depends largely on radio astronomy. How did that start?
1: It's sort of a question of you search for the things you can search for. So, you've probably heard the story about the, the drunkard searching for his keys uh, sure. at, under the light under the light post. Right? The cop comes along and says, "What are you searching for? My keys?" And did you lose them here? And the drunkard says, "No, but this is the only place where there's light." So. That's a long way of saying uh, the the first the first scientists who got seriously interested in probing the Fermi paradox and starting to actually look for evidence of extraterrestrials happened to be physicists who were also steeped in uh, astronomical thinking and who were familiar with radio astronomy and um, and who happened to have access to radio telescopes. So they had a tool at hand that they could use to actually turn this this field that had been philosophical and theoretical for centuries into something that was more empirical and evidence-based. So they did. And radio telescopes were the tools they had at hand, so they started using them to peer out at specific places in the sky to see if there was anyone trying to get in touch with us. Um, to, to flesh that out just a little bit more, I mean, it, it's e- even more accidental in a sense in that Uh, It was only the result of um, some sort of serendipitous discoveries in the 1930s uh, that we had um, realized that there were such things as radio sources in the sky. Uh, A Bell telephone engineer uh, named Jansky was trying to figure out why there was so much static interfering with transatlantic telephone radio conversations and accidentally built a machine, uh, built a telescope that wound up Uh, discovering some of the first sources of radio interference from the sky which eventually uh, after world war ii led to the whole birth of the field of radio astronomy and so by the late 50s people were building telescopes large enough to actually start being able to ask you know are there could there be civilizations out there that are aiming radio signals at us so it was kind of a, a, a long series of accidents and in, in a sense, the whole field of SETI has been defined by the radio search for these, these potential signals, and um, it may, in fact, be time for us to start thinking about how to grow beyond that, uh, how to grow beyond the phase when we're only looking for radio signals or optical signals.
0: Yeah, you touch on that, well, more than touch on that in a later portion of your book, but um, about this time, something called the 21-centimeter hydrogen line became very prominent in the search. What is it and what role does it play?
1: The 21-centimeter hydrogen line is the characteristic frequency at which hydrogen atoms release radio waves. Uh, it, it, It gets into quantum mechanics, but the short version of the story is that um, every hydrogen atom has one proton and one electron, and um, usually the quantum spin of these um, these two particles are the same. They're both sort of up or down. Once in a while, the, the spin of the electron can flip from up to down, and so you wind up uh, with a transition from uh, parallel spin to anti-parallel spin. And when that happens, a little bit of energy gets released. That energy is always released at a very specific frequency. 1421 megahertz or 21 centimeters and it happens to be a frequency that uh, carries very well through interstellar space it doesn't get um, stopped by space dust it doesn't get stopped by our atmosphere so it's easy for us to see it it's a very sharply defined line and it it became basically one of the first um, markers uh, for radio astronomers of uh, frequencies that would be um equally referenceable by anyone right because there's so much hydrogen in the universe it's the most common element in in the entire universe and it emits at this very specific frequency when when atoms go through this spin flip transition so therefore it would be known to every civilization as a kind of a reference frequency and it became the starting place for almost every seti search um since 1960.
0: Well, you know, we talked about the Drake equation earlier, and what the Drake equation does is it gives you an estimate of the number of uh, the number of civilizations that have achieved a sufficient technology that we can communicate with them. How has the estimate of the number of such intelligent extraterrestrial civilizations changed over the years?
1: Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Drake equation has always been more of a, just a tool for discussion and argumentation rather than a uh, uh, rather than a scientific question. It's, it's everyone accepts that it's the kind of equation that is, is designed to lead to a range rather than a specific estimate. So basically you can uh, you can assign upper and lower bounds to a bunch of the terms in the equation. And depending on whether you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic, when you multiply all these terms, you wind up with either a very small number or in some cases a very large number. So N, which is the first, I mean, the, N is the, the, the kind of the culmination, the point of the Drake equation is N, which is supposed to represent the number of communicative technological civilizations in the galaxy. So the number of other civilizations we might have a chance of making contact with. And N can't be any less than one right? Because we're here. We we really think (laughs) we're here. We think we're here anyway. So N can't be any less than one. But there have been any number of estimates of what the upper bound of N might be. The uh, Green Bank group that I talked about before, Frank Drake, Carl Sagan, these other guys who got together in Green Bank in 1962, they put the lower bound for N at 20, and they put the upper bound at 50 million. Um, Now, you can... You can reach almost any number you want just depending on, on what sort of what values you plug into the different factors. Um, I've taught uh, a couple groups of MIT undergraduates um, and uh, one of our exercises in class is to go through the Drake equation and come up with our own estimates. And uh, our group has come up with an even broader range of estimates with um, a lower bound of one and an upper bound of six billion. So <laughs> um, the point of the Equation is not, again, to come to any sort of uh, hard conclusions about how many other civilizations there are. It's really more to just give you a way to think about all of the uh, different factors to consider when you're you're trying to add up the probability that we're not alone in the galaxy. So an estimate like 1 is probably pretty low and pretty pessimistic. An An estimate like 6 billion is probably way too high. Because if there, were 16, if there were 6 billion other civilizations in the galaxy, a lot of them would be so close that we would already have made contact. So there's some middle range that might be more realistic. We just, you know, we can't be much more exact about what it is.
0: Um, how did the search for extraterrestrial intelligence morph into the idea of sending a message to possible extraterrestrial in intelligences? And what was the general feeling about whether or not the advisability of doing this?
1: Well, it turns out that the same instruments that you need to, to listen for radio signals from other star systems are also very good at transmitting signals. So, for example, the Arecibo radio telescope, which up until recently was the largest radio telescope in the world, um, it's been surpassed by one in China now. But for a long time, it was the, one of the premier places to do SETI work. And indeed, astronomers have spent a lot of time using that telescope to, to look at different stars and listen for signals. Back in 1974, after a project to upgrade the telescope, there was a little ceremony. And Frank Drake, who was the director of Arecibo at the time, arranged for the transmission of a short message. Uh, that it has The Arecibo message has wound up becoming the most famous example of METI, or Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And it consisted of basically a um, a sort of simplified graphic. Um, it was the signal itself was a series of just bits, basically. Almost you can almost think of it like Morse code, on or off. But there were exactly one thousand six hundred and seventy nine of these bits. And that, if you're a mathematician at all, and you received one thousand six hundred and seventy nine bits, you might you'd factor. conclude, yeah, you'd factor it very quickly and realize that that was. That's uh, got two prime factors, 23 and 73, and if you arrange the, the bits in a grid that's 23, uh, 23 rows across and 73 columns high, you would wind up with a picture. And that picture was designed to convey a whole bunch of information about us and our level of scientific understanding and where our solar system is and what we're made of and that kind of thing. Um, it was a stunt. I don't think it was ever intended to be received by anyone. In fact, it was pointed in a direction where no one will ever receive it, uh, but um, it was it was a way of showing that this you know if you have these powerful telescopes that can receive very faint signals, then um, by definition, they're also capable of transmitting very powerful signals. Uh, and in fact, the, the Arecibo message was sent out at such a high power that any Arecibo-sized telescope anywhere in the galaxy would be capable of receiving it. So you know in principle, we, we know we can do this. Um, Whether we should do it is a totally different question, and we haven't done a ton of it, partly for that reason, um, that, uh, you know, I don't think scientists, let alone average citizens, have really thought through all of the um, pluses and minuses to the idea of giving away our location. Um, Of course, there are other folks who argue that we've been doing exactly that since the 30s. You know, we haven't been very careful about all of the radio and TV signals leaking out into space. So anyone who was listening at those frequencies would already know that we're here. Um, What is the Goldilocks zone? Right. Well, when you're thinking about how common life might be in the galaxy, one important question is how many habitable planets might there be where life could get started? And around every star, there is sort of a a region. You can think of it as a sort of a, uh, a, a perimeter or a zone where if a planet was orbiting inside that zone, then uh, it wouldn't be so cold that liquid water would freeze and become un- unusable by life. And it wouldn't be so close that liquid water would boil off. It would be in that nice zone where um, water would stay liquid. And there may be some sort of terra so to speak, in this whole idea, but we do think that water is probably an essential ingredient for life, or at least it's a lot harder to imagine how life could, could get started in any other medium. But um, The Goldilocks zone is basically that place where it's not too cold, not too hot, and it's just right for water to stay liquid and potentially become the breeding ground for for organic molecules that, you know, form into self-replicating molecules that form into life that start the whole chain of evolution.
0: Um starting in about the 1980s we began discovering the idea of exoplanets and it's just burgeoned into more than a cottage industry it's an industry what are exoplanets and how does the goldilocks zone vary with stellar type
1: right an ex- exoplanet is um shorthand for extrasolar planet and it just means any planet that's verified to exist around s- some star other than our sun and we had no evidence that th- that there were any exoplanets at all until the mid '90s. But since then, we've developed um, a couple of different techniques for spotting them indirectly. And now we know that there are um, at least 4,000 for sure, and the number is growing all the time. Um, the way you detect exoplanets, by the way, is either by measuring the wobble of uh, of the star that this planet orbits around, because um, you know, uh, if the planet is large enough, it would kind of de- cause a detectable uh, motion as the planet and the sun kind of mutually orbit around their their center of gravity. You can actually measure that that variation as the star moves across your field of view. The other way we find exoplanets is when they happen to cross in front of their suns, and that causes a, a minute but detectable decrease in the luminosity of that star. And um, if the period if it's a certain curve, you can you can you can conclude pretty confidently that 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 was a planet that passed in front of it. So uh, we've now found about four thousand and growing of those um, cases in the galaxy, and it turns out that um, a lot of these exoplanets are around stars that are very unlike our star. Uh, our sun is an average uh, G-type star that is going to be relatively long-lived. Uh, Long enough for life to have started here in our solar system, obviously. Um, But turns out there are a lot of exoplanets around uh, red dwarfs, which are much smaller um, and much cooler, but live way longer than our G-type star. So you can imagine a red dwarf that's uh, tens of billions of years old, which actually creates a pretty long runway for life to get started in those kinds of solar systems. So when we find exoplanets around those kinds of stars, obviously the uh, Goldilocks zone for those kinds of solar systems is going to be much closer into the star than it would be in our solar system. So you can imagine, and in fact we have discovered solar systems where like there are multiple planets, but they're all orbiting inside what we would think of as sort of the, the orbit of Mercury. Um, can just imagine like a miniature solar system where every planet is so close to its star that its, uh, its radius of orbit is smaller than the uh, orbit of Mercury. And that can kind of like give you a picture of the weirdness of a lot of a lot of other solar systems.
0: Um, well, I know we've discovered uh, a number of planets which are definitely in the habitable zone. But um, getting on to something that you discuss, what is the great silence and what are some possible explanations for it?
1: The great silence is It's basically the premise that Fermi was starting with at that lunchtime conversation at Los Alamos. I mean, um, he was discounting the possibility that flying saucers really represented aliens, and he was saying, well, look, it looks like nobody's visited us, and not only that, but we haven't heard from anyone else. Um, And that continues to be the case. We couldn't test that idea in 1950, but starting around 1960, we did start testing that idea and seti has been going on for 60 years, and we have found... Uh, no repeated credible evidence of radio or optical signals from other stars. So that is the great silence. It's it's just the fact that we're we seem to be alone. And what was the other half of your question, Jim? Um,
0: what are some possible explanations for the great silence? Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> well, that's what the bulk of my book is about.
0: Exactly, and now we're there. <laughs>
1: yeah. So there are a lot of different explanations Expound for the great silence. found a way. Yeah. Okay, well, there's actually a book out there that catalogs 75 solutions to the Fermi paradox or to the great silence. And it's by a wonderful writer named Stephen Webb, W.E.B.B., and readers who are really hungry for uh, a deep dive on on every conceivable explanation that's ever been proposed uh, can go and find that book. I don't try to go through all of them in such extreme detail in my book, but I do I do try to boil them down into general categories. And I would say uh, one category of answers basically uh, boils down to we're alone. The reason we don't see any signals out there is because we are the only advanced civilization. We're the only intelligent beings who have the technology to listen or communicate. And that might mean that we're the first. It might mean that we're the last. But in any case, uh, it means we're alone. And the reason we don't see anyone else is because they aren't there. And um, there have been some very uh, credible and compelling arguments for the uniqueness of life on Earth. Um, There was a a book called Rare Earth that came out in 2000 that made a very sort of exhaustive uh, list of reasons why Earth is unusual and why, if you kind of tweaked any specific thing about our local environment, it might have made life impossible here on Earth. Like, for example, The fact that we have a magnetic field, our planet has a very strong magnetic field, which winds up um, uh, sparing us from the worst of uh, ultraviolet radiation and cosmic rays and a whole bunch of other nasty stuff from um, outside. Um, We have a moon, which is relatively large and relatively close, and it helps to stabilize the tilt of our axis. And it's arguable that without the moon, the Earth's axis would precess much more wildly than it actually has. And you can imagine a planet where um, it's spending half of its time kind of uh, tipped on its side and and, um, different regions of the planet aren't getting equal exposure to the sun um, would be a very hard place for life to start. Um, I could go on and on. Um, We have a, a giant neighbor in our solar system in the form of Jupiter, And uh, there are um, there are ideas that Jupiter's presence helps to sweep away a lot of the space debris that would otherwise be raining down on the Earth and um, destroying uh, life here. Um, So so the rare Earth hypothesis is, in fact, boils down to the idea that that Earth-like places are so rare that we shouldn't really expect to see them anywhere else. That's an extreme sort of pessimistic, I I would say, uh, or maybe (laughs) realistic. It depends on how you're feeling. Um, on the opposite end of the scale, there are explanations that assume that we're not alone and that there must be some reason why we haven't been able to make contact with, with other civilizations. And I'm obviously skipping over a whole bunch of possibilities here, but I'm just going to you know, like, zoom to the way other end of the spectrum and talk about those kinds of explanations. Uh, if you... If you, if, if you conclude from your reading of the Drake equation that there must be thousands or millions or billions of other civilizations in our galaxy, then you have to start asking yourself, okay, okay, why haven't they contacted us, or why can't we detect any signs of their existence? And that has led to speculation about ideas such as the zoo hypothesis, also called the quarantine hypothesis, which is the idea that, um, yeah, aliens are out there, and they know we're here, and they're deliberately concealing themselves or... Um, keeping their existence secret until the moment when they feel like it's safe to admit us into their club. And, uh, it's a, it's a very science fiction idea, but, um, who knows? I mean, I guess it's plausible. I'm not sure I would want humanity in its current state to be part of the galactic civilization. I'm not sure we've quite grown up to that point, but, um, you know, um, that's, that's an opinion at the far other end of the spectrum. And, there are lots of others, uh, possible explanations in between. And I really, rather than go through them one at a time, I would really recommend that folks get the book and read chapter four.
0: Um, absolutely. But there are a couple of things that I would like to definitely discuss. And, sure. um, these are your particular ideas. Um, because after all you wrote this book and having read it and having said that I, I want to say that I enjoyed it immensely and I recommend it for basically anybody who likes thinking about these problems. And if you don't like thinking about these problems, why are you listening to this particular podcast? Um, but one of the ideas that you have is something called the wrong glass. And um, that seems sort of central to your way of thinking. And may, uh, I'd like you to expound a little on it.
1: I'd be happy to. So in order to explain what I mean by wrong glass, I have to refer back to a couple of other stories. So um i've been talking about pessimistic and optimistic ways to interpret the great silence um and that leads you to the glass half empty glass half full metaphor um at the same time uh there's a very famous SETI scientist and astronomer named Jill Tarter who's been one of the leading proponents of SETI and one of the innovators who's kind of kept the whole SETI enterprise going over the years and um In her writing and her speeches, including a uh, TED talk she gave back in 2009, I think, she has often compared um, our progress on SETI so far to um, dipping a single glass into the ocean and coming up with a glass full of water. And so you ask yourself, did you find a fish in that glass? Well, if you didn't find a fish, you could conclude that there are no fish, or you could conclude that we've only begun to sample and we need Uh, to go much farther before we can really draw any conclusions. So what I'm trying to say with the wrong glass idea is uh, I'm trying to get beyond these glass half-empty or glass half-full approaches, and I'm even trying to get beyond the kind of traditional SETI outlook, which is that we might need to keep searching for decades or centuries in order to have a really good chance of finding a signal. And I'm trying to get people to think about the, uh, the possibility that Um, maybe a glass isn't the right tool for finding fish. Um, Maybe the fish know that we're looking for them and they're scurrying out of the way. Um, Maybe fish aren't even what we should be looking for, right? So maybe we're using the wrong glass. That's a a key concept that I kind of want to leave people with because I think we've been doing traditional SETI for long enough that uh, certainly we should not slow down or stop, but we should also start thinking about whether we might want to reconceive this whole enterprise and start thinking about um, what other types of life might exist that we haven't conceived of yet. And if we stretch our imaginations a little bit and try to think of life as we do not know it, to quote uh, another SETI astronomer named Natalie Cabrol, then we might be able to come up with uh, search modalities or, or, or uh, types of media. Uh, types of communication schemes, types of languages, uh, types of signals that we would never have conceived of before, and that once we start thinking more broadly, we might eventually discover that that there have been signals there all along, and we just weren't listening to them correctly. So that's sort of the wrong glass idea, broadly.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that I I won't say it bothers me, but when I read this, I said, okay, that's a good possibility. But could you outline some of the ways that we that we may be completely missing this? Um, because uh, I mean, I, I'm a scientist, or at least I like to I like to think of mathematics as a science, and the uh, uh, the glass uh, the glass analogy struck me as very reasonable when I read that Jill Tarter, who um, one of the things your book told me was, I didn't realize this, but Jill Tarter was the model for the heroine of Carl uh, Carl Sagan's cos- uh, um, novel Contact. I didn't realize that at the time. <clears throat> but uh, I think of this as, well, what would such a communication be? I mean, this is about the time you start thinking about Well, other ways, mysterious Zen ways or philosophical way, but I can't get, you know, I can't wrap my head around these. And so I sort of uh, hope that you would illustrate with a couple of ways that we might, that we might think of it in a totally different fashion.
1: Right. Okay. Well, I'm going to say first off that I'm not a physicist and I'd like to beg forgiveness in advance for any goops uh, or misinterpretations that I'm about to offer. But one analogy or, or one similar situation you can look to is, um, is, a, is a situation in astronomy um, around gravity waves, right? So, general relativity from 1915 um, predicted that space was distorted by mass and that there ought to be situations where um, if something... Big enough happened. If two giant, giant masses collided, there would be detectable ripples in the space-time fabric that that was first sort of theorized by Einstein. For you know, upwards of um, eighty or ninety years, we didn't have any way to test that. Gravitational waves were a purely theoretical idea, and while uh, most most physicists agreed they probably did exist because they were predicted by theory, uh, we didn't have any way to to measure that. And it wasn't until uh, the last decade that we actually perfected instruments that allowed us to start measuring tiny ripples in space caused by things like very distant uh, black hole collisions. And now we know, and now there have been, in the last five years, there have been, um, I think on the order of dozens or scores of observations of these giant gravitational events elsewhere in in the universe. And we are now officially gravitational wave astronomers in addition to being optical astronomers and radio wave astronomers and x-ray wave astronomers we can now do gravitational wave astronomy something that was completely theoretical up until the last decade that's a kind of um analogy for the situation that i'm talking about there i'm not proposing that there's anything zen or supernatural going on i'm not proposing that we just need to like get centered and tap into some cosmic meditation in order to find other aliens what i'm what i'm proposing is that our science is not complete, that physics has holes, that there are things we don't understand. Um, what is dark energy? What is dark matter? Why is the acceleration? Why is the expansion of the universe accelerating? Um, what are superstrings? Right? How are um, quantum mechanics and general relativity both possible? And how are they? How can we reconcile the two of them? So there are all sorts of big questions that we haven't figured out yet. It's conceivable that as we start to figure some of those things out, we'll stumble across additional ways of communicating, additional media that could be used for communication. And um, I went to a really fascinating little talk um, at Harvard a couple of years ago where an astronomer was proposing that if a very powerful technological civilization wanted to create uh, an obvious, unmistakable beacon of its, of its existence, what they would do would be to um, create an artificial black hole about the mass of Jupiter and put it into orbit around Sagittarius A star, which is the massive, supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. And that confluence of a small black hole orbiting a giant black hole would create gravity waves that you could detect anywhere in the galaxy, assuming you had a gravity wave detector. And that if that small black hole stayed in a stable orbit for more than a year or two, you would know for sure that it wasn't uh, a natural thing, that it was artificial, because the only way to keep it in that stable orbit would be to apply a continuous sort of thrust to keep it from falling into the larger black hole. That was like a a totally whimsical example, but a provocative example of how you can imagine using a gravity, uh, how you can imagine sort of constructing a gravity wave-based signal or communication of a sort. So let's just Try and keep stretching our imaginations in that way. Maybe we haven't discovered everything about, you know, how to transmit information using um, quantum entangled particles, for example. I'm not going to go any farther than that because I don't know enough of the physics. I'm just saying let's keep our uh, minds open to the possibility that the radio and optical spectra are not the only places to look for signals.
0: Um, I think you're probably right about that, but it seems to me that it requires a much more advanced technological situ- uh, civilization. And I like the idea that Carl Sagan uh, propounded in I think it was in Contact, where you just send out <coughs> you just send out a radio signal consisting of uh, prime numbers. Everybody knows that that's going to be artificial, and it's something that it's easily achievable as soon as you develop radio, which I think is a lot sooner than. A civilization coming up with ways to manipulate quantum entangled particles or gravitation, but that's just me.
1: Well, I like that scenario too. I think the the reason I'm more suspicious about it now than I would have been, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, when Sagan was writing Contact and when they were making a movie out of it, is that it's suspiciously anthropocentric, right? It just it depends sure. on a chain of events that re- that really strikingly resemble exactly what happened here on Earth, it's us. and yeah, it, right, it's us. <laughs> Right. We're looking for us. Well, the extraterrestrials might not look like us and they might not think like us. That's all I'm really saying.
0: Yeah. um, Wade, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I've enjoyed it immensely. And I'd like to uh, I always end interviews by asking, um, first of all, how can a listener get in touch with you?
1: Oh, well, um, they can find out more about the book at the MIT MIT Press website at mitpress.edu. Um, they can search for extraterrestrials on Amazon. Uh, my personal website is at waderoush.com. That's Wade H.com. I make my own podcast about technology in the future. It's called Soonish, and people can find that at soonishpodcast.org. And uh, both my website and the Soonish website have contact forms where people can uh, email me. Terrific.
0: And do you have any future projects we might be interested in? Namely books Uh, I can podcast with you.
1: Absolutely. And I'll let you know as soon as I can actually talk about them publicly.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. Wade, it's been a pleasure. Take care.
1: Thank you, Jim. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much.